Hi guys, this is Doug Fletcher, and you're listening to What's the Hazard, our podcast about safety and health, um, intended for safety professionals, business owners, uh, contractors, and employees for that matter, anybody that has an interest in workplace safety and health. So welcome back. It is February 7th, and we're in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I don't have any guests today. Um, I think what we're going to do today is just a little bit of an OSHA update, kind of catch you up on things that are going on with the agency, uh, things that are going on here locally and, and may have implications elsewhere. So um, first and foremost, I guess, uh, you can catch all of these episodes at our website, www.fletchersafety.com. And you can also communicate with me if you have suggestions for topics or you have information that you're looking for. You're trying to hook up with a, a resource of some type. You can reach me at Doug at FletcherSafety.com. So write those down and keep those available for yourself in the future. Um, it is February. And so as far as OSHA is concerned, it is record keeping month. Everybody is required to post their OSHA 300 log. If, if you are required, I should say, if you are required to maintain OSHA 300 logs uh, as part of the record keeping requirement, it is time to have posted your OSHA 300A, the summary form. So uh, record keeping is based on typically the size of the company and the nature of the industry that you are in. So there are exemptions for small businesses and there are exemptions for low hazard industries. So for example, if you have 11 or more employees at all time or any time during the previous calendar year, you're required to keep an OSHA 300 log that subsequent year. So again, based on the size of the entire company, 11 or more employees at any time during the previous calendar year in your entire company triggers the requirement to keep a 300 log that subsequent year. And if that's the case, then you do have to post the summary sheet, the 300A. And so we post our 300 A's uh, February 1st through April 30th. Okay, so those should be up now. If you don't have it up, uh, make sure that you get it completed and get it posted Post it somewhere that the employees have an opportunity to see it, you know, a break room perhaps or next to the time clock or something like that. Um, You don't have to go to extraordinary means to get it out in front of your employees, but it is supposed to be available for them to view if they care to, uh, if they're interested in that information. So um, make sure that those are posted. Now, in addition to that, uh, OSHA's electronic reporting requirement, it's referred to as the injury tracking application. If you have 20 or more employees at a given location, at an establishment, you are required to upload that 300A information into that ITA, that injury tracking application, by March 2nd. So the window is open. You can be uploading that information now, but it has to be in by March 2nd, okay? So again, that's a little bit different. We are talking establishment-specific as far as that ITA electronic reporting. So again, 20 or more employees at any time during that previous calendar year, we're going to have to upload that information. And so uh, that will apply to some of you definitely. And so that information has to be submitted by March 2nd. Um, Interestingly, we had an interesting incident here in Omaha, Nebraska, not too long ago. You may have even heard of it. Uh, I think it made the national news, actually, if I'm not mistaken, We had an incident where uh, some guests of a local uh, theater complex, it was kind of a theater, bar, restaurant type of a complex. You probably have those. Um, uh, 
the well, I'm not going to give the name actually. Uh, well, it was probably it was probably broadcast everywhere. The Alamo Draft House, okay, and uh, in La Vista, Nebraska, we had an incident where two guests were served a cocktail from the lounge and experienced some immediate uh, distress. You know, they they. Uh, from what I understand, there, there, you know, nausea and vomiting and some other uh, gastrointestinal distress from in, in ingesting this cocktail. Uh, they certainly, obviously, complained then to the uh, the bartender who who himself, I believe, tested the cocktail and and also had some experience some of this distress. As it turned out, uh, it. There was um, a cleaning chemical, from what I understand again, and I have just third-hand information of this, but a, a cleaning chemical that is typically used to clean the, you know, the beer tap lines um, had been placed in a, a liquor bottle, an empty liquor bottle that had somehow ended up back on the bar, and it contained this cleaning chemical. And, I, you know, it was some type of a liqueur, I believe. It, it was like a pomegranate liqueur or something. The cleaning chemical had a color to it, so it wasn't clear. And again, somehow that uh, that cleaning chemical in this liquor bottle ended up in cocktails that were served to guests. Um, just an incredible circumstance, but it's something that really speaks to those of us in the occupational safety and health world because we, you know, we focus heavily and we spend a lot of time talking about labeling these secondary containers where chemicals from a tote or from a drum or something are placed into a smaller container that is going to be taken out into the workplace um, and and the potential confusion that can result from that. So we, we refer to that as hazard communication and secondary labeling or workplace labeling where we are removing um, a chemical from a larger container, probably from the supplier's container that has a supplier label on it. And we're putting it in a smaller container and you know, there are so many things that can go wrong with that. I mean, if you if you transfer chemicals into a jug, for example, or into a spray bottle, which is very common, uh, I've seen many, many, many spray bottles or one-gallon jugs that are unlabeled or improperly labeled out in workplaces. And you can take that out into the workplace. And if you are um, mistaken about the contents of that container or would happen to misuse that that chemical, you know, if it's incompatible with something that you're doing. For example, you can have, you know, some pretty bad consequences. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time auditing our workplaces, looking for these secondary con- containers to make sure that they are properly labeled. And the hazard communication standard, OSHA's chemical safety standard, requires us to put the product identifier and some type of notification of the potential hazards of that chemical on these containers. Uh, you know, and that can be that can be done in a, a number of ways. For you know, you can write that on there with a sharpie, for example, which is historically what most companies have done. You just you put you transfer a chemical from the larger container into the secondary container. You use a sharpie to indicate what the product is, and now under the new GHS requirements, we put down the nature of the hazards, whether it's corrosive or whether it's toxic, flammable, whatever that might be. So we know. Um, and interestingly, as I said, I've, you know, I've been in a number of facilities where, you, where it is fairly easy to find unlabeled containers, but these are oftentimes spray bottles or jugs, as I said. Um, I have had the occasion to see secondary containers in the form of like paper cups, like what might be a coffee cup or something. 
Somebody will transfer maybe paint that's fairly common or even a solvent that you use to clean out your paint gun or your paint, you know, the nozzles in your paint gun, they might transfer that into a paper cup. You know, that becomes really problematic in my opinion because those, you know, those are things that could be easily mistaken for a consumable and somebody might ingest that kind of thing mistakenly. I was in a facility probably two or three years ago where in the maintenance department, the maintenance employee had put engine fluids, brake fluid, hydraulic fluid, those kind of things into Mountain Dew bottles, just pop bottles, you know, 16 ounce pop bottles. And so they had a blue one and a red one. And these, and I mean, unfortunately, Mountain Dew comes in all these different colors now. And so I, I know, I don't believe there was any ill intent there, but you know, that introduces so much potential confusion into the identity of those chemicals. It's, it's really uh, a terribly bad practice. And so this incident that we had here in Omaha not too long ago really brought focus to the, you know, how, how important it is to, first of all, consider the container that you're putting these chemicals in. In the first place, putting the chemicals into a liquor bottle was absolutely a horrible idea in the first place and then not labeling it in the second place and then reintroducing it into the the bar area in the third place just one bad decision after another but we do see that kind of thing in our workplaces again so secondary labeling is a big deal for OSHA I can tell you that OSHA compliance officers find those unlabeled labeled containers and those can certainly be cited under the hazard communication program labeling requirements. And, you know, this is a serious citation. You're talking about thousands of dollars for not labeling those containers. In fact, this Alamo issue, I don't know if it's being investigated by the local OSHA office, but since an employee had exposure to that, it is an occupation, it's an OSHA issue. And so in addition to the, you know, exposing these, the customers, which was horrific in the first place, uh, the exposure or, you know, that the employee had was also something that is, uh, regulated by OSHA. So I wouldn't be surprised if they haven't been involved in, in some capacity in that investigation. But I know there's more to come on that. Uh, it's my understanding that the individuals that consumed the mislabeled chemical are okay, fortunately, and that, that is great news, but it could have been much worse. And so um, I guess uh, I guess that's a lesson to all of us, man. And, you know, just don't take this stuff for granted. And one thing that you need to be doing in your workplaces is when you are doing your site safety audits, be sure that you are looking for secondary container labeling and make sure that's being taken care of. It's it's easy to miss a few. The OSHA folks typically don't miss those. Uh, they are they're basically low hanging fruit from an OSHA perspective. And so, let's make sure we have a good way to audit our workplaces and identify those unlabeled containers. And one thing I would suggest to you is make it easy for your employees to label those containers. First of all, they need to know what is an appropriate secondary container. You know, I don't think paper cups, I don't think pop bottles, I don't think those things should be used at all. But if you're going to use a spray bottle or you're going to use a jug or something that's intended for chemical, um, as a con chemical container, make sure that they are labeled appropriately. So that might mean uh, train your employees what information needs to go on that container Provide them the materials to put those labels on there. I mean, if, you, if you're if you using Sharpies, make sure there are Sharpies available right at the point where they're transferring those chemicals. Uh, if you are using a label, make sure you have the materials to generate those labels 
readily available so they can transfer those onto those secondary containers. I was in a facility not too long ago that actually had to set up a little workstation specifically for secondary containers. They had a they had a poster that showed an example of what they wanted as far as secondary labeling was concerned. They had the materials necessary. Uh, they had tags and zip ties and markers and and labels to be affixed. It was a nice, convenient arrangement for employees to be able to do that. So uh, just a reminder, I mean, it's something that came up here locally that was really um, potentially tragic, you know. So, uh, you know, so we got kind of lucky with that one, but let's make sure we're paying attention to that. Uh, secondly, OSHA is I, I, is revisiting the silica issue. Uh, as you know, we have new regulations that pertain to silica exposure, respirable crystalline silica in general industry workplaces and construction workplaces. Uh, and I just read in the OSHA announcement this morning that OSHA has just promulgated a new national enforcement program or national emphasis program on silica. I think it went into effect uh, February 4th, if I'm not mistaken, and that will that will provide OSHA a targeting mechanism for making silica inspections. Up to this point, in the absence of a national emphasis program, they have been using complaints and referrals and, frankly, even you know visualization of dust clouds from construction sites as a mechanism to identify those uh, facilities or those projects for inspection. This new national emphasis program will utilize NAICS codes. Uh, NAICS is the national North, or North American Industrial Classification System. So it is a code that basically identifies the primary activities of your business, the nature of your business. And they will target inspections based on those NAICS codes. Um, and that pertains to general industry and construction. So if you work with silica or you have uh, work activities that generate silica dust, perhaps, uh, I would suggest that you go onto the OSHA website and take a look at this national emphasis program uh, to see how that might affect you and your workplace. Um, OSHA has always, they have also gone out with a request for information, an RFI. They are asking for input uh, with regard to the adequacy of Table 1, which is part of the Construction Silica Regulation, 1926-1153. That's the Construction Silica Standard. And Table 1, as you know, identifies a number of different construction work activities and gives us con- control strategies for addressing potential silica exposures. If we follow those recommendations as they are provided on Table 1, we don't have to do air monitoring, things like that. So the table is incredibly valuable, uh, but there has been an RFI put out looking for more information as to those activities. Is the table adequate? Are there activities that need to be included on that table? Do we need to offer some alternative control strategies on that table? So um, I would expect that they are going to actually expand that table at some point. Now, this may take a while, but um, again, that would be beneficial to folks in the construction sector with regard to controlling silica exposures. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, The National Emphasis Program is up, and I'm sure after a period of, uh, there is a little bit of an outreach period that that accompanies all of these national emphasis programs. So once the agency has completed the outreach portion, 
they will start making inspections based on that emphasis program. So take a look at that. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is, um, and, we've, and we've talked about it on a few other programs. Um, I'm going to start off by giving you a, a little bit of a quote. My, my son, one of my boys, is a philosophy major out in uh, Colorado. And uh, aside from what that's going to lead to as far as employment is concerned, uh, he's a smart kid. And he told me one time, we were talking about, I think, safety. I'm sure he was bored out of his mind, but that's what I talk about. So we were talking about safety and, you know, enforcing safety policies and things like that. And he and he told me, he shared with me a quote from Plato. And this is going to make me sound much smarter than I actually am. But Silence gives consent. That is Plato's. That is Plato's uh, quote, and I'm sure it was more of kind of a social justice context when he gave the quote. But it certainly applies to what we do in in safety. Um, if you happen to see an employee or anyone for that matter working unsafely or violating a safety policy in your workplace, and you ignore that, you are basically giving them consent to do that in the future. So, and this is something that just came up this week in an audit that I just conducted where, you know, lead people in a particular company, superintendents, foremen, lead people, they are basically ignoring, you know, safety violations. And if you ignore them, you are giving consent to them. I think, I think you know, the, the consequences of ignoring those things are significant to the effectiveness of our safety programs. And so I I think we need to consider the fact that silence gives consent to these um, undesired or dangerous behaviors, right? And so um, it's not really the safety managers or safety coordinators' responsibility to go out there and identify these um, undesired behaviors and correct them. It's everybody's responsibility. If you want to have an effective safety program, everybody has to be watching out for each other. And when you see those things, whether that be an unsafe act or unsafe behavior or just a, a policy violation, we need to address those. We, we can't be silent, okay? It's just going to manifest. It's going to grow. It's going to increase, and it's, and, and it's going to be a problem, Um you know, that, that leads me to that whole concept of compartmentalizing safety. And I, I think that is a mistake when we have uh, safety programs or we have safety training or we do safety audits. What we really should be doing is, as, as we've discussed on previous podcasts, what we really should be doing is ensuring that our, pro- our products, are be- our quality products are being produced safely. So rather than you know, safety as a specific box, I think we need to make sure that we are including those, you know, they are inseparable and they need to be, they need to be addressed that way. And so rather than going out and making a safety audit and looking for unsafe behaviors, we just need to always be cognizant of the fact that while we are in our facilities or on our job sites, watching how production is going, you know, evaluating the quality of the product or the, or the procedure or the service, we need to be ensuring that, you know, working safely is a component of that. And so I, I just, I struggle a little bit with breaking things, things out specifically as safety programs or safety procedures 
or safety training. We just need to be ensuring that production, quality, and working safely are all part of each of those elements. And so, yeah, don't wait until Friday to do your safety audit to take a look and see how how your employees are performing. Make sure that that is always part of your consideration when you're out in the workplace. All right. Um, I think that's all I've got for today, actually, Pat. That was probably the shortest podcast I've done, and maybe that's probably probably get cheers from some of the folks. But um, I do want to, we're about three months into this, and it, it, it has been, you know, an incredibly exciting experience for me. I think everybody's been enjoying it. All of the guests have been incredibly gracious and generous with their time and information. I want to quickly just take a moment to thank everybody Jeff Springer, Jim Steele, Ruben Berra, Scott Love, Cody Hoover, Mark McClure, Abby Cherney, Ron DeBoard, Aaron Cerrone, Jim Cover, and Danny Arroyo have been the guests to date. And again, keep in mind that we're not making any money on this. You know, I'm not paying them. They're coming in on their own time. Um, and it is a significant time commitment to leave work and come in and record a podcast and share information and give advice and and uh, frankly, you know, it's uh, you know to talk about your own failures and successes and things like that. Uh, I'm just I'm just impressed by these people to no end. Some of these people are full time employees of their respective employers, but some of them are act- actually contractors and consultants, and so. I would encourage you to go to the website, go to FletcherSafety.com, find their contact information. Uh, Jeff Springer, for example, is kind of our local fall protection guru, but he does a lot more than just that. And I'm sure he would be interested in helping you if you are looking for assistance with regard to fall protection or ladders or other PPE needs, things like that. And I'm sure he would appreciate it. Um, same is true of Mark McClure. Mark is uh, he's with OSC Safety out of Des Moines excellent safety man. Uh, I'm sure that they would appreciate your business if you have a need for some type of consultative assistance in that respect. Um, My buddy Aaron Cerrone, you know, Aaron is kind of the leadership, um, lean manufacturing process improvement guru in the area. He does training for companies on safety leadership, on process improvement. He would be an incredibly valuable resource for you. And then finally, Danny my friend Danny Arroyo, who has uh, started her business, WorkSafe Consultation. Um, she is an ergonomist or, you know, uh, an occupational therapist with expertise in ergonomics and things like that. So, again, uh, reach out to these folks. All of their contact information can be found on the website. I am truly and sincerely grateful for their time and their commitment to the, the effort to get this information out there and available to you. There is much more to come. I'm working with Pat and Jill here at Parkville Media. We have some really ambitious plans for the podcast and for the website and for the information that we intend to get out to you. Uh, So please stay tuned for that. We'll be bringing you more information in the future. Thank you for listening. You have my email address. If there's anything that you need or would like to see from the podcast, if there's information that you would like uh, that would help you, please let me know. Uh, and we'll do our best to get that out to you. So um, that's it for today. Uh, I look forward to talking to you next time. We've got, gosh, we've got some really incredible guests coming up in the future. Um, we're going to be doing a, a podcast on process safety management 
coming up next. For those of you that are actually interested in process safety management, PSM, you know, for the nerds in the safety community, uh, this is, you know, I've got two guests coming on that are really, really well-versed in PSM. I can barely understand them, so prepare, prepare yourself. But they know just about everything there is to know about PSM. So we're going to be talking about PSM with them. March, we are looking at doing, March is going to be OSHA month, and we're going to be bringing guests on to talk specifically about OSHA, OSHA inspections, uh, informal conferences, uh, OSHA procedures. Uh, I've got some guests from NIOSH coming on. It's going to be really exciting, so um, I think you're going to love those. So stay tuned in March as well. And uh, gosh, I think I actually have to take a breath now (laughs) and take a drink. Uh, this is just water right now, Pat, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Um, thanks, everybody, again, for your support. You, you know, support has been tremendous, and I sincerely appreciate it. We want to get you what you need, and your support is um, fantastic. It's, it's really helping. So that's it for today. I will talk to you soon. A Parkville Media Production.